You may be seated. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 16 is where we are. Judges chapter 16, we have been looking at the life of Samson now for a month. And Judges 16 is probably the most uh, famous, uh, the most known chapter in the entirety of this book. It's a chapter that's well known to us. It's taught to us for those of us who are Sunday school graduates. It's taught to us at the early age uh, with the flannel graphs and um, seeing Samson between the two pillars. You know this story. For those of you who don't know this story and aren't familiar with it, I just, I'm so thankful that I have the privilege of showing you this story in the scriptures. The story reminds me a lot of having work done at my house. Uh, maybe you've had work done on your house. Maybe you have work done on your car. Maybe you've had work done on something where uh, the people will say to you that this is what it's probably going to be, and they'll give you a, a figure of how much you're going to owe by the time they're done working. And it'll probably take about, uh, for us when we were working on stuff at our house, it'll probably take about three months, and three months turns into four, into five, into six, into seven. And that bill that they said, oh, it'll probably be about this, and maybe a little bit more. And you end up getting that bill, and you, you're looking at things. What, how much is this cost this much to actually do? What happened to the original number and what happened to the original time frame? This chapter is very similar to that uh, story that many of us have gone through where we realize things cost a lot more than we thought that they would. One pastor says it this way, sin itself will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. This chapter is in the Bible to remind us that we should not be surprised when sin does bad things to us. From as early as Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4 brings death. Sin is lying, crouching at the door, wanting to kill us. As John Owen said, if we aren't killing sin, sin will be killing us. And so this morning we're going to look at Judges chapter 16 and learn four lessons about sin from Samson's tragic ending. Before we dive in, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time, that he would elongate it, that he would bless it, that he would enable us to see clearly what he would have us see this morning. Father, we ask, as we always do when we come to your word, that Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things. There are so many amazing truths in these verses. And we, with fleshly eyes, can see them, but we won't truly understand them unless you give us the ability to have spiritual sight. So, Father, be pleased to bring sanctification to the lives of believers in this room. God, be pleased to save, to redeem non-believers in this room, that they would see the peril of their sin. And God, above all, may we see sovereign grace on display as we come to the end of this amazing figure in the book of Judges. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The first thing that we will see about sin is that sin, number one, sin makes you stupid. We say this a lot at our church. Sin makes you stupid. It makes you do dumb things. It makes you stupid. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 3 in Judges chapter 16. 
Verse 1, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And when it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson's come here, they surrounded the place. And they lay in wait for him all night at the, the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let's wait until the morning, and then we'll kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose. He took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, and he pulled them up along with the bars. He put them on his shoulders, and he carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now, what are these three verses doing in the Bible? It just seems like a, an aside. We've been following Samson's story, and then here's just a blip, and then we're going to move on to Samson and Delilah. What's happening here? Well, we're, we're seeing sin making Samson stupid. Gaza is not just a Philistine town. It's their capital city. So we see Samson being a lot more reckless. I'm going to just hang out at the capital city of my enemies. They've tried to kill me a number of times, but I can just go and hang out there. We also see that his sin of sexual immorality is growing. Now he's sleeping with a prostitute. And the traps around him are getting stronger. He's being surrounded with the city guards around the gate. Things are just going to progressively get worse. So Samson, in his sinful stupidity, goes to this town, and the Philistines see an opportunity. They knew in order to subdue Israel, which is what they wanted to do, we have to subdue Samson. So they thought, here we go, we can get him. They lie in wait for him. Samson decides, I'm invincible, I'll just leave right now. They won't get me. Just love to know how this plays itself out. As all of these armed guards are lying at the city gate, and they're going, shh, we gotta, we got to be quiet. And he, they, they hear people walking by them, and they, they shh, we, just, we need to keep quiet. And all of a sudden, just a huge, this must have made an enormous sound for Samson to rip the gate off of his hinges, put it on his back, and just start walking. Hundreds of pounds on his shoulder, and he's going to walk for 40 miles with this gate on his shoulders. And in the morning, these armed guards say, well, what happened? Where, where did he go? What's going on? Why tell this story? Why tell us this story? Why does the author of Judges say, before we move to Samson and Delilah, I want you to see these three verses? First of all, it's a great summation of Samson's life. I mean, this is just stupidity on display, which is just Samson to a T, going to a, a harlot, going to the capital city of his enemies. This is probably also an indication of what Samson's 20 years as judge would have looked like, that God's using him in his stupidity. When he's doing really dumb things, God says, well, I can still get glory out of this. I can still use this. And he would destroy the Philistines. We've already seen that in the first uh, other chapters of Samson's story. But why tell this story now? I believe the reason why this story is here in chapter 16 is because Israel needed to see Samson as a mirror image of who they themselves were. Samson is a mirror image of what Israel's doing. Israel was to be God's chosen nation. Samson was God's chosen savior. Israel fell in love with pagan gods. Samson fell in love with pagan women. Israel walked away from the signs of their covenant with God. Samson's going to walk away ultimately from all of the signs of his covenant with God. The Spirit of God's going to refuse to abandon Israel, and the Spirit of God's going to refuse to abandon Samson in his hour of need. But Samson is a paradigm of Israel, somebody who's raised up out of nothing, 
richly gifted, panders around with other people, with other lovers, and yet apparently is always expecting at the end of it to just come back to God. Well, God will always be there for me. Sin makes smart people do really dumb things. And we see that on display in these first three verses. That's not all we see about sin. Number two, we see that sin blinds us. Sin makes us stupid and it blinds us. This is in verses 4 through 21. So we have Delilah. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. We don't know if she was Philistine or Hebrew. This is actually the first time that we've ever gotten the name of one of Samson's lovers. It's the first time we've gotten the name of any woman in the story of Samson. You remember Samson's mom was never named. Her name comes from a root word meaning weak or poor. So here we have Delilah, the weak woman, who's going to be hanging out with the strong Samson. And we have Delilah, the poor woman, who's going to desire the wealth that betraying Samson will get her. We also have a very interesting um, parallel. Her name sounds, if you say her name, it sounds almost identical to the word night in Hebrew. Which, if you remember, Samson's name means sun, shining sun. And here comes Delilah, the night to destroy the sunshine. This is a beautifully poetic, beautifully ironic account. So, he loves this woman, Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines, verse 5, came to her and said, Entice Samson and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. 1,100 pieces of silver. Judges chapter 3, verse 3, told us that there were five lords over the Philistines. That was in Judges 3. There's no reason to believe there was any less than five lords at this time. Maybe there's even more. But if we just take the five lords that Judges 3 mentions over the Philistines, that would come out to 5,500 pieces of silver. Just for comparison, the price of a slave is 30 pieces of silver. David in 2 Samuel, when he buys that threshing floor and the oxen for the threshing floor, you remember the temple is ultimately going to be built there? He pays 50 pieces of silver. And she's going to receive 5,500 pieces of silver. So Delilah apparently says yes, goes to Samson, verse 6, and says, please tell me, where your great strength is, and how you may be bound in order to afflict you. I don't know how you ask this question so that it can be answered. I want to know how many times she thought, how can I ask this in a way that I can get an answer without it seeming like I really want him to die? How can I? And again, sin blinds you. Samson's going to hear this, and he's going to think I'm invincible. I can give you the answer, and nothing's going to happen to me. Samson said, if they bind me, verse 7, with seven fresh cords that have not been dried. My Bible says fresh cords. It's the word for sinew or tendon. So it's a, a tendon from an animal that had just recently been slaughtered. So you take that tendon, you wrap it around, you tie it, and then it would dry and become hardened and shrink over their hands. So if you bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh cords that had not been dried. She bound them, bound him with them. And she had men lying in wait in an inner room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toast snaps when it touches fire, just instantly off. 
So his strength was not discovered. At that point, if I'm Samson's father and he reiterates the story to me, I say, it's time to dump her. (laughs) You see what she's capable of. You see what she's trying to do. Samson, it's over. But verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, they're still in a relationship. Behold, you've deceived me. You've told me lies. Now, please tell me how you may be bound. On the second time that somebody asks me that question, if I'm Samson, I go, I get what you're trying to do, and I'm out of here. I'm not staying in this relationship. You clearly want my demise. The Philistines are upon you to destroy you. There's no way I'm staying here. After the second attempt, which is now with ropes, verse 11, if they bind me with ropes, tightly bound with new ropes, which have not been used, and I will become weak. So Delilah took the new ropes, bound Samson with them, and he said to them, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and the men lying in wait in the inner room, but he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. After the second attempt, we as readers, I think, are right to question Samson's sanity. Is this man insane? Does he, does he realize what she's up to? I think the answer is yes, he, he really understands what she's doing. Next question is, is he really that stupid? And the answer is yes. He really is that stupid. And even as we're reading this, we're chuckling, right? We're, we're kind of laughing at how ridiculous this is. It, it's like watching, reading this is like watching a really bad, scary movie where like three people have been slaughtered in a barn and one guy gets up at two in the morning to try and find his cat and the cat goes into the barn where the three people have been killed. He's like, are you in there? And you're just yelling, don't go in there. Like the, you can see, don't do this, Samson. This is going to be bad for you. And I, I think that we should, to a certain degree, laugh at what's happening here. One commentator says it this way. In the Bible, hilarity is the servant of solemnity. Scripture usually tells us something funny in order to sober us up. I, I love how that's worded. We're, we're right to laugh at what's happening here. This is so Foolish. This is so stupid. And yet, just as this was a mirror for Israel, this is a mirror for us. We see our own stupidity and the foolishness of sin as we read this account. So, verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, attempt number three, up to now you deceived me, told me lies. Tell me now how you may be bound. I love this. He said to her, I think at this point, he's going to start playing games with her. First, it was, I mean, it's, it's challenging to get these seven cords that slaughter these animals and give us the tendons. Then it's just ropes. But now, if you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web, a loom, and fasten it with a pin, then I'm going to become weak and be like any other man. So take my hair, make seven ponytails out of my hair, put them all in pins in a loom, and weave it together so that I can't move. I wonder if Samson's saying, first of all, she's never going to do this because this is a big process. Second of all, if she does this, I'm going to wake up. And that's my question. How is Samson not waking up with any of these things happening to him? And then third, I wonder if Samson says in his mind, if she does follow through with these seven ponytails in her loom, I'm going to destroy her loom. And if, if you touch a woman's hair products, it's going to be very bad for you. And so he's thinking, I can just shatter all of Delilah's hopes and dreams by destroying her loom. So she does it while he slept. Delilah took the seven ponytails of his hair, wove them into the web. 
She fastened it to the pin and said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? Just a two-minute aside (laughs) on love and relationships, okay? Samson and Delilah are an extreme case of something that I think most couples struggle with. They're an extreme case, granted. But we even got this with the Paul Tripp conference, with marriage and the, the way that we love one another. Sometimes I think that relationships exist not because we truly love somebody and we want to serve them, but because they can provide a a way to meet a need that we have. So it's not, I'm with you because I love you, even though that's what we say. I mean, he even says, I love you, Delilah. Samson, I love you. They're saying it to each other. But what they really mean is, I am with you, not because I love you, but because you're useful to me. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves says this, if you have a need love... It's just crying out from poverty. I I want to be with you and I love you only because I need something from you. Gift love longs to serve. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. Gift love longs to give her happiness. And then in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says, you cannot love a fellow creature fully until you fully love God. Unless you understand that God fully satisfies your soul and that you get to just love somebody else and meet their needs and encourage them and be kind to them without any reciprocation whatsoever. That's a good marriage and that's true love. I'm here to just love you. But we see Samson and Delilah, they're saying, I love you, but that just means I will be with you and stay with you as long as you meet my needs. For Samson, that's, I want maybe a little bit of danger I like feeling invincible, and obviously he enjoys sleeping with women. For Delilah, Samson can be used to make money. I don't love you, I'm using you. And unless you have a relationship with God that satisfies your soul to the most deep, intimate part of you, even the most passionate I love you in human relationships will just mean I need you to make myself feel like I'm worth something. And that's never a good relationship. Okay, marriage relationship done. Verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him. We already saw this with his first wife with the riddle. Tell me the riddle. Tell me the answer to the riddle. We've already seen this. That his soul was annoyed to death. My Bible says annoyed to death, impatient unto death, just nagged to death. Whatever I need to say to you to stop talking to me, I will say it. That's why Proverbs says it's better to uh, live in a a house with no roof than just rain pouring on your head than it is to live with a contentious, nagging woman. Samson knows that full well. So he tells her, verse 17, everything that was in his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come to my head. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more. He's told me all that's in his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, maybe better access to his head, shaves him, calls for a man, and has that man shave off the seven locks of his hair. 
So this barber comes in, shaves off his hair. Then she began to afflict him. Not just the Philistines, she did it. And his strength left him. So she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I'm going to go out just like the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. He didn't even know that the Lord had left him. It wasn't that Samson's hair was gone. Samson's hair was never the source of his strength. God was always the source of his strength. His hair is a sign of the strength that he has. The source of Samson's muscles, the source of Samson's strength was not his hair. It was God who had set Samson apart as a Nazarite from his birth. Theoretically, God could have taken Samson's strength at any time, especially after he's violating his Nazarite vow over and over again, touching dead things, drinking alcohol. But God stayed with Samson as long as that visible symbol of his Nazarite vow was there. And when his hair was gone, God leaves. It wasn't, Samson's, it wasn't that Samson's hair was gone. It was that God was gone. God left him. He didn't know it, though. He gets up. He wants to fight the Philistines. I don't know if you know those people, if you have them in your life, that just think they're invisible, invincible. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want, and nothing will ever hurt me. That's Samson. So the Philistines seize him, verse 21. They gouged out his eyes. Sin literally makes him blind. And they brought him down to Gaza. This is where the story began in chapter 16. They bring him to the capital city. They bind him with bronze chains. This is the closest that they've ever gotten to him. They could never get this close to him. So let's bind him with chains. Let's gouge out his eyes. And let's force him to grind in the prison, in a mill, to grind the grain. The man who had burned the Philistines' grain is now reduced to grinding it. And for the very first time in the entirety of the book of Judges, God's deliverer has been defeated. So we see that sin makes you stupid. Sin blinds you. And we see number three, sin shames God. Sin shames God. Skip down to verse 23. We're going to come back to verse 22. The lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon. This is their fish, half fish, half man God. So they're in the temple of Dagon and they want to offer a great sacrifice and rejoice because they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. And they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. When sin is brazenly exposed, it causes others to rejoice that God is pathetic and that their God is all-powerful. So, Don't just kill sin because it makes you stupid. Don't just kill sin because it blinds you. Don't just kill sin because of moral reasons. Here's a reason, theological reason to kill sin. Because when you are involved in sin, others are looking on and you bring God into that sin and you shame God. Samson's led a nation of people under the banner that God is our deliverer. So when he is delivered into the hands of the Philistines, they say, our God, Dagon, is better than your God. Samson's shame now becomes Yahweh's shame. The praise that belongs to God alone is being heaped at the lifeless feet of Dagon, this half fish, half man. And because God's servant had been humiliated, God himself is humiliated. Can I just ask, what what message does your life broadcast? What message does your life broadcast? Does it say to the world that's looking on, God is better than anything in this world? 
Or does it give ammunition to non-believers to say, yeah, your worldview has no reason to be believed, and my worldview is better than God? So it happened when they were in high spirits. This is a big festival. Uh, festival wine is flowing. There's a huge party. And they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. Literally, the word for amuse is the word for we may laugh at him. But it's really interesting the way that my Bible says it, we may, um, that he may amuse us. Because that word, if you just change the vowels of that word, it sounds almost identical to the word crush. Um, bring him out so that he may crush us, which is a foreshadowing of exactly what's about to happen. Let's just be amused by him. So they called for Samson, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now it was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. So 3,000 on the roof. We don't know how many are there on the, on the ground floor. And it's all of the important people. So if Samson can destroy what's happening in this temple with everybody who's there, Samson can wipe out the Philistines. All of their governors, all of their lords, all of their kings are gone. Now, I said we needed to go back to verse 22 because I think that this tells us what was going on in the Philistines' mind. Verse 22 says, However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Seems like a strange verse because, of course, that's what's going to happen. You cut hair, it's going to grow back. And again, we need to remember that his hair is not the source of his strength. It's the sign that his strength is returning. But the Philistines only knew conditional gods who were subject to manipulation. They only knew if you do something for this God, the God will help you. And if you don't do something for the God, the God will hurt you. I think we can fall into that same trap. Why do we think that God's going to bless us? Sometimes we think that he's just going to bless us because that's the way he always is. That's the way he always has been, and we just become complacent and lazy. Sometimes we think he's going to bless us if we push the right buttons. We just have to do the right things, and then God will uh, bless us. Just find the correct formula. Find the correct recipe. Just If I study the Bible enough, if I pray enough, if I go to church enough, I do these things in order to be blessed by God. And you can hear how wrong that is. Instead, it's our relationship with God that's the foundation from all of our being, all of our duty, all of our blessing flows from. But the Philistines believe if Samson has disobeyed his God and his God has abandoned him and strength has left him, then that's it and it's final. And even if his hair grows back, the Philistines see this. I mean, the, the lords are there. They were the ones that said, okay, if we cut his hair off, then he loses his strength. Here we go. We're good to go. Here's 5,500 pieces of silver. They see his hair growing back, but they, not one of them says, hey, let's be careful here because remember it was his hair. When we cut that off, he lost his strength. So if it's growing back, maybe his strength is coming back. They have in their mind a false uh, worship of pagan gods. One commentator says it this way. The Philistines knew nothing of the God who does unexpected things like with Ehud whose strength is made perfect in human weakness, like with Gideon, and a God who never breaks his word. That God had said that Samson would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. Therefore, his abandonment of his servant could only be temporary. The promise was bound to hold, however Samson might despise it. There is grace abounding to the chief of sinners. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. So Samson's hair growing back is not meant to make us think, oh, now he has hair, so he's going to be strong again because his strength must be coming from his hair. It's there for us to see that the Philistines think that his strength is gone because his vow has been broken. You break a vow, God abandons you, it's over. But they don't understand that God doesn't work that way. Our God does not work that way. Our God works with grace. And he made a promise to Samson, and he will fulfill that promise. So he abandoned Samson for a time. But as we're going to see, he's going to come back and be with Samson even to his death. So we've seen sin makes you stupid. We've seen that sin blinds you. And we've seen that sin shames God. But point number four, and this is where we have to end, God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. This is verses 28 through 31. God's grace is greater. Our sin is stupid. Our sin is foolish. It blinds us. It makes us dumb. And it shames God. But God is greater than all of our sin. And His grace is greater than all of our sin. We are great sinners. And we serve an even greater Savior. Verse 28, Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord... That's in uh, initial cap and then lowercase. So that's, oh, my master, and then my Bible says God, which is Yahweh. It's all in all capitals. Oh, master, my master and my God, my covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, personal name of God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this one time. Oh, God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. He asks two questions. Please remember me and please strengthen me. But notice what's absent. He never says anything of, I deserve this, or please help me because of all that I've done for you. I've been a judge for 20 years. Please help me. No, instead he says, remember me. Very picturesque word. It's a graphic illustration of what Samson's saying. Remember me. It's please call to your mind. I I shouldn't even be in God's mind right now, Samson is saying. I have no right to be in God's mind. He shouldn't be thinking of me or caring about me, but I'm asking, please call to your remembrance who I am. Bring me back to your mind. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve even to be remembered. Remember me. It's very similar to the words that the thief on the cross says, Luke chapter 23, verse 42, remember me. He was a thief on the cross. He wasn't just a thief. He was a murderer. In fact, I think that Jesus probably took Barabbas' spot on the cross. So that middle cross was meant for Barabbas. Jesus takes it. We know Barabbas was a murderer as well. This is a murderer. Thief, murderer. On a cross. And he just turns to Jesus and says, please bring me to mind. Please remember me when you go to your kingdom. I've got nothing to offer. I'm pinned to a tree. And Jesus looks at him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, to this day you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me. We look at the thief on the cross and we think, wait, that wretched man, the murderer that he was, he got in? Look at Samson. Is God going to remember him? There's a Jewish tradition. It's not true. Let me just preface it by saying that. But it's really an interesting tradition where rabbis talk about that when Samson prayed, remember me, 
His prayer went up to heaven and the angels heard his prayer and they tried to shut all of the windows of heaven so that the prayer would not enter into heaven. They thought if God hears that prayer, God's going to save this man and he does not deserve saving. So they try to shut all of the windows. And then God hears Samson's prayer go through the window. And God says, wait, is that Samson praying? Is that wretched bandit praying? And he hears his cry. Now, there's much in this prayer that we have questions about. Doesn't seem like Samson's saying, please avenge yourself. I've brought you shame. Justify yourself. Vindicate yourself. No, he says, I want to be avenged from my two eyes. But if we focus on the latter half of the verse and say, man, his prayer should have been better, we're missing the beginning where he says, I have no reason to earn this or deserve this. There's no reason why you should care about me. But I'm asking you, God, will you do this? Now, between verse 28 and verse 29, nothing happens. We don't have a voice from heaven saying, I'll be with you. We don't have Samson being told God's going to save. We just have Samson praying a prayer and then standing up, verse 29, grasping the two middle pillars on which the house rested, bracing himself against them, one with his right hand and one with his left hand. And we, just like Samson, as we're reading this, if we're reading it for the very first time, we're wondering, what's God going to do? Samson prayed. God hasn't answered yet. What's God going to do? Is he going to give strength? What does Samson do? Samson prays and he believes God's going to give strength. God's going to give this to me. He believes it. So he says, verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all of his father's household came down. They took him, they brought him up, they buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he judged Israel for 20 years. Our God heard his prayer and answered with, yes, I'll save you. I'll bring salvation through you. There's usually two types of people at this juncture when you're reading the story. One type says, God answered his prayer? God, do you know who Samson is? You're going to help that man out? Do you see what he's done to you? This is ridiculous. Samson doesn't deserve God's help. To which I would say, what else is new? None of us deserves God's help. These kinds of people frequently have a very little sense of their own depravity. They think, God helps me because I'm good. There's a second type of person. When they read this account, wait, God saved Sam? He heard his prayer? He delivered him? They say, man, I've done stupid, sinful things myself. I've miserably failed the Lord. And to them, this passage screams out that you can find hope and rejoice that even if you are in the middle of Dagon's temple, God's going to hear your cry. He's going to hear your cry. You can call on the Lord for salvation. So, Samson cries out for salvation. Please help, please deliver, please bring strength even though I don't deserve it. There's so much more that needs to be said about this and actually about the whole Samson story that we're going to kind of do a part two of Samson uh, next week. We're going to do Samson's entire life in review and look at all of the uh, amazing 
realities of who he is and, and of how God works. So we're going to dive deeper into this issue of God's grace and why what Samson did was absolutely amazing. But we know, just to wrap this up this morning, we know that Samson is in Hebrews chapter 11. You read Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews says that Samson believed God. He, Samson said, I don't deserve your help. I believe you can help me, and I'm asking you to help me even though I don't deserve it. When I read Hebrews 11 and I see Samson, I see Jephthah. I see people that I go, man, the author of Hebrews clearly hadn't read Judges in a long time. He said, yeah, those guys were awesome. They did great things. Are you surprised at God's choosing of Samson? Maybe even offended at God's choosing of Samson? Just remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're, we're not as impressive as we think we are. We're not as faithful and righteous as we think we are. And maybe one day we'll get over the, the surprise of the people that God chooses to use. Yes, sin makes you stupid. And yes, you must turn from it. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. If you cover your sin, if you, if you cover it, if you try to hide it, you will not prosper. But if you confess it, if you forsake it, you'll find mercy. And many of us today need to do just that. Confess sin. Say, God, I'm done. I don't want to be blinded. I don't want to be living in this anymore. I know it's going to shame you. But if you look to your own righteousness as a deserving of God's grace... If you say, you know what, I, I'm going to stop sinning, God. I'm going to start loving you better. I'm going to try harder, and then you will love me. You're misunderstanding the entirety of the gospel. You're misunderstanding the grace of our God. We've said it before, and we'll say it again in closing here. Samson is in Hebrews 11, not because it's the hall of fame of faithfulness. It's the hall of fame of faith. Somebody just saying, God, I believe your promises. And even though I have no reason to deserve them or earn them, I believe it. And as we come together this morning to partake of communion, there's, there's no better account that we could turn to than this account of Samson. Samson said, I have no right to deserve anything from you or to expect anything from you, God. And I'm just asking on the basis of your kindness and your goodness, would you please be my help? Would you please be my help? strength. Communion is a declaration of thanksgiving over the faithfulness of our God, even in our faithlessness. That's why we gather together and we partake of these elements. These elements remind us of the covenant that God made with us, and he made a unilateral covenant with us. He said, I'm going to do the work. You are the recipient and the, the beneficiary of the work that I'm going to do, and I'm never going to turn back on that. The vow that God made with us through the gospel was purchased at Calvary, was one forever through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you place your faith in Jesus, in his saving of your soul, not in your faithfulness to get to heaven on your own, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you know the grace that Samson knew. You know the deliverance that Samson knew. You know the strength that Samson knew. And you have the same God who graciously says this morning through these elements, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And nothing, not even your own sinful stupidity can separate you from my love. That's why we partake of these elements. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have reason to celebrate. And that's why we're going to pass these out. We'll take them together. So hold on to them as they're passed out. We'll, we'll sing a song. We'll take them together as a church family. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have reason to celebrate because what you're saying is the covenant that God made with me through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, that covenant is alive and well today, not because of my goodness, but because of Jesus's amazing grace. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, first of all, these elements aren't for you. Let let them go by. These are for people who love Jesus, who trust in his finished work on the cross for salvation alone. Let them pass. But can I plead with you this morning? If you are trying to get to heaven or trying to earn God's favor or trying to make God love you because of your ability to keep his laws, to earn his favor, to make him love you through what you can do, you're going to fail time and time again. And that will either lead you to being angry at God for setting such high standards. Wait, I have to do this? I have to be perfect for you to love me? You're going to get angry at God. Say, how dare you make such standards that nobody could ever keep? Or you're just going to say, those standards, you don't need to keep those. And you're going to become a moral relativist. And you're going to say, whatever standard works for you, works for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, those standards, you need to meet those in order to get to heaven. You need to be perfect if you want to get to heaven on your own. And God knew you couldn't be perfect. None of us can be. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why God sent Jesus to live out that perfection and then to die on the cross, taking that amazing record of perfection and saying, it can be yours. And I'll take your record of unrighteousness and sin. I'll put it on myself and I'll be penalized and judged and condemned as if I had lived your sinful life so that you can be blessed, loved, granted favor and grace as if you had lived my perfect life. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death once and for all, so that all those who had placed their trust in him would know forgiveness of sins. If that is not you this morning, if you do not know that your sins have been forgiven, please don't leave until you've talked with somebody and that you know the grace of Jesus at the foot of the cross. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace that is truly greater than all of our sin. Even in our faithlessness, even when we fail, even when we sin and go astray, you in your grace find us. You made a way through Jesus. You love us and you will never let us go. So that's what we stare at this morning. We don't look to our own goodness God, we want to keep your commandments, and we will as we love you. Those who love you will keep your commandments, but we don't do it perfectly. And so we never look to our ability to keep your commandments as a reason for why you would love us. We look to Jesus. And we never look to our inability to keep your commandments as a reason to why you would stop loving us. We look to Jesus, who is our faithful high priest. And when our faithfulness fails, his faithfulness stands. So Jesus, be pleased as we offer you thanks and declare with grateful hearts this morning. We're blown away by your amazing love. And we cling to it now. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the men if they would come and pass these elements out. Take them, hold them. We will um, partake in the Lord's Supper together when we're done singing. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, 
Sing, for my life he bled and died. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raise with him to endless life. He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight When he comes at last And those he saves are his delight Christ will hold me fast Precious in his holy sight he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall yes, they will. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He But by him at such a cost, we know he will hold us fast. And that's what we celebrate. We know the promises of our God are true because if God the Father did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with Jesus freely give us all things? And what can separate us from the love of God? If God is for us, no one, not even our own selves, can be against him. So that's what we celebrate this morning. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread. He said, this is my body. Perfection. That's going to be nailed to a cross and broken for you. So that you can have my perfect record of righteousness because I'm taking upon myself your imperfection, your sin, your unrighteousness. And he said, do this as often as you do it. Do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him with grateful hearts together this morning. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant that's poured out for the sins of many. This is the cup that would ratify the covenant, my blood that will wash away your sins, that will make you white as snow, and that will declare once and for all, there's nothing that can snatch you out of my hands. I have purchased you with my life, with my very blood. And he said, as often as you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's remember his death and his resurrection together as we drink.
And let's stand together and just sing the reality of that last point that we studied this morning, that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and all of our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mouth poured, there where the blood of the Lamb Let's sing about His grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than our sin. Father, may we live in that grace this day as forgiven and free sons and daughters of the Most High King. We love you and we thank you this morning with grateful hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, risen and coming again. Amen. Blessings on the rest of your Sunday and blessings on the rest of your week. We'll see you Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for Bible study. Blessings. Give me your hope for tomorrow.